0: Spanning the Nerdosphere, talking about everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films and everything in between. It's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Battaglia.
1: Here we are at episode 120 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast, where you're either one side or the other, Nick. You're either Team Pokemon Go or Team Pokemon Go-Away.
2: In under one minute, I'm looking out my window, about four people walk by my apartment staring down at their phones for Pokemon.
1: I'll tell you what, if you end up in my backyard looking for Pokemon, you're going to be in for a big surprise when I open that door (laughs) when those dogs come running out. Not to chase you off, but because you open the door, the dogs run out there. Hey. You know, just don't, just don't be smart when you're playing Pokemon Go. I'm James with them alongside.
2: Nick Bataglia, aka the Merc with One Arm. And yeah, man, you know, Pokemon Go really quick. It was, it's been a freaking phenomenon. Holy Jesus. People
1: are using real estate listings now, telling you what poke Stops are nearby so you can buy a house. Seriously, I've seen this. And then there was a couple of, um, the Virginia Zoo was another example saying, you've, people have found rare Pokemon here. Come out to the <laughs> zoo. And I'm like, that's brilliant. There's
2: actually a minor league baseball team. It's a A team, I believe. And they have this thing now where for $5 on like this certain day, I guess, you can go, if you're playing Pokemon Go for two hours, and just walk around the park for 5 bucks and capture Pokemon.
1: I mean, hey, people will do it. Yeah. People will do it. I mean, if you want to make the money while it's there to be made, as long as you're not hurting anybody, I'm down. Do it.
2: Yeah. Or, or robbing people, as we saw.
1: Yeah, I mean, come on, man. It's just every time something good comes out that people love, somebody's got to ruin it. You know, right. somebody's got to be the douche that tries to ruin it. But I mean, I—it's not for me. I'm not saying people shouldn't do it because everybody has their things, and Lord knows I've got my things that people look at me and be like, "Really, you like doing that?" And like, yes, yes, I do. So I certainly don't. You know, look down on anybody that plays Pokemon Go. It's just not for me.
2: Well, yeah, man. I mean, you know, for me, it's like I said last week. You know, I love playing the Game Boy games, and Pokemon Go, I'm, I'm looking at it, and I'm like, all you're doing is walking around capturing Pokemon you can't battle. I know they're going to choose multiplayer, but it's like, also, I'm not going to lie, and people have to be aware of this, it kills your fucking data. Yeah, like, your, your data. It eats it up.
1: Your battery, by the way, the whole Google permission snafu before they finally address that, I mean... There's a lot, man, and I know that everything, when it launches for the first time, is going to have its bugs, and this is kind of a follow-up to a story we did in Nerd News last week, but... eh You're right, it's just capturing Pokemon, and I said something on my Facebook page the other day, I said, how long before we see a Mario Go, or a Zelda Go? Right. You know, people are going to be all over that, too.
2: Right, Zelda Go, you just walk around smashing pots, but then you actually have people like walking around actually smashing real pots.
1: Right, exactly, or people jumping up to get the the question mark blocks from Mario (laughs) Go, and like, tearing their ACL or something, or or breaking their their face, yeah.
2: they breaking, they're cracking all their knuckles and everything else, and breaking their hands because they actually punched a, a brick wall
1: right through the window, John Cleese style. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, real quick, the last week we
2: also talked to John Lehman, of course, the writer from Predators versus Judge Dredd vs. Aliens. That was a lot of fun, man.
1: It really was, and I mean, I was just—we were both so excited when we saw that cover image for the first time months ago, and found out that John Lehman was going to be writing it, and to bring this story to life and have these characters there. There were so many yes moments in that book, and it's still not even out yet, by the way. You've still got a couple weeks before it comes out, but you're going to want to grab this book when it does because, man, it's just—it sets everything up so well, but there's still so much action in the first issue, and the way that they bring in that kind of mad scientist thing, I just—I loved it.
2: And speaking of things that set up other things so well, come next— it's what ring, and I read a comic that sets up something that's coming out in theaters pretty soon. It sets it up really, really well. What is it? Find out. Come up next in what we're reading. Hey there. This is John Lehman. You are listening to
0: Down and Dirty Podcast.
2: Well, it's that time, boys and girls, where we pull our long boxes and discuss what we're reading. So, James, a movie that's going to be coming out is Kong Skull Island, and... So, of course, Boom Studios says, hey, let's make a comic based on it. And, of course, I read this week Kong Skull Island, number one of six. And it's from, of course, Boom Studios. James Asmus did the writing. And the art is done by, of course, Carlos Magno. And the colors are done by Brad Simpson. But I really, before I dive into the comic itself, I want to talk about the cover. The oh, cover yeah. is done by Philippe Massifera.
1: And it is gorgeous. That man... Has some seriously amazing cover art, and that one, when you see it, just grabs you and it makes you instantly interested in reading this book. It does such a phenomenal job. But I, I, I read this book too, and the art in the inside, Nick, doesn't disappoint either.
2: And, and what I love about certain art styles is art styles that really complement the the era that mm-hmm. they're set in, that the book is set in. And this is set in early, early times. We see we we have each, this tribe and. Pretty much what they're doing is way it's up in the beginning in the synopsis is they're trying to find a mate for another Kong. And so what they do is they have these Kongs fight it out. And it's pretty interesting because it's kind of like, you know, this whole idea of just man and beast and man controlling beast for how long and what can happen. And there was a moment, James, You again, you read this too, where there was a little bit of tension in there and people were getting a little bit nervous with the Kongs.
1: Yeah, it looks like it's all going to hit the fan and you think that one thing is happening, but then you realize that it was actually something else. And you don't really see that in books anymore. It was, it was kind of a swerve where you didn't really expect to have something like that happen. And then you go, oh, it was just that. And then you think things are calming down and then later on not so much
2: and if you want to look at like the the way the art is done uh in terms of when you look at the people and especially in the beginning like when you look at like page three page two if you read like the old phantom comics on the newspaper the that kind of has a little bit of a feel to it And that's why i like it a lot cause it, again it has that that old feel to it you know
1: oh yeah definitely and it, it doesn't feel comic strip ish Either. I know exactly what you're saying with the style, and I think you're absolutely right, but it doesn't have that strip ish feel because there's so much background detail in this book as well, especially. When they're going through that the the battle scenes and you know the sacrifices for the tribes and stuff like that, the background scenery, which is just as important in this book, I think there was nothing left to nothing left wanting there either. And what I love
2: about this too is I love the characters because everybody in this is on edge. You know, mm-hmm. whether it's when will the Kongs turn on us and they find out? Well, wait, it was just this other thing that happened, wasn't them? And then you know you have people go on this little bit of a voyage and they find skull island and from there on it's just like the key word is survival like all these people need to survive so so pretty much this first issue you deal with all these different characters in this tribe and they're at literally each other's throats and then towards the end it's kind of like oh my god this day of reckoning is near or it pretty much has come and it sets up like how possibly Kong got on Skull Island and stuff like that, you know?
1: Yeah, it's a great prequel. I mean, it's a great way to set up what the movie's going to be, and it actually explains literally the origin of Kong's, plural, Yeah, in in a sense that, you know, there was more than one, and this is how they came to be, and this is how they were acclimated and stuff like that, and so maybe that's why things have gone the way they are once they go into the island. And I got to say that even the writing in this book... Was so detailed and really captured the moments. Oh, it does. Especially the tribe, you know.
2: Oh yeah, because with the tribe, when when you look at the writing and the writing is just so so good, and you see this writing and it's just like it grabs you. Like when somebody, even when somebody points out, look, there's Skull Island. You're like, oh, like it grabs you, you know.
1: It's the perfect combination of the art telling the story and the writer telling the story. They got it right with this one. I mean, because the visuals were so so important in this book. Especially towards the end, where it's just kind of, like you said, where it's on, and it's all about survival. There's that two different types of storytelling that, when you combine them together just right, makes a great book, man.
2: Exactly. Of course, this is a six-part series from Boom Studios, and I'm not going to lie, man. I know this isn't a book you're reviewing this week, but I'm just going to say... This is, a, I think, a pull for both of us.
1: Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, I was, I was grabbed immediately, so well done by the folks at Boom Studios and the team on this book. I think it was fantastic.
2: So, sir, so you went back to your DC roots, and you also went to China over the past week as well.
1: Yeah, I decided to do something a little different since is doing some different stuff with Rebirth as well. I decided to dive into the new Superman, the Rebirth issue, which is written by Gene Luen Yang. Victor Bogdanovich did the pencils on this. Richard Find did the inks. Hi-Fi on the colors, and David Sharp on the letters. Now, for anybody that doesn't know what New Superman means, or you didn't see the solicits or anything like that, basically we're headed to China. We're going to have the the Chinese Superman, and we have a couple of other characters that debut at the end of this book as well. Yep. I don't really want to spoil that.
2: Yep, but, of, uh, We'll just say they're of Chinese descent.
1: Yes, and it's basically all based in China. Now, I w- I'm going to preface this review by saying, we have to go in to a couple of spoilers here because if you don't use spoilers, you can't talk about this book at all. Right. There's just no way to talk about this book without using spoilers. So just to start things we basically have a character named Keenan, and this is going to be your Superman character, which you kind of guessed by the cover image, but there's something about Keenan. And there's something about this book that if you've ever been the victim of bullying in your life, Oh, yeah. This book's going to make you angry in the beginning. Oh, yes. And I'm not saying that to make you not read it. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, actually. What I'm saying is is that this is your main character, and you might not like him, because he basically picks on this kid that's, you know, a little chubby, a little nerdy, stuff like that, so maybe it hits a little too close to home for some of us. But, and this doesn't necessarily excuse behavior, but we find out as you keep reading this book... That there is a reason that he's targeting this specific kid, and there's a reason that he kind of acts the way that he acts. But I mean, as you go through this book, you find yourself not really liking him. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah, and that's the thing is like in the book when I read this book again, I was at first kind of like, wait a minute, he's a bully. I can't really get behind this character. But then you see why he's lashing out. Again, doesn't excuse him for being the bully and how he is. But you just get the fact of like, okay, now I can not really get behind him, but now I can more understand him in a sense.
1: It humanized him a little bit as you went, because you did see flashes of goodness. So it's like, okay, so he's not a complete dick. Right. So maybe there's hope there. So that's kind of what makes you keep going. And then there's the sense of, I think, him getting a little overwhelmed with the whole thing as it goes into, you know, how this whole Superman thing comes about and they explain exactly how he would become the quote unquote new Superman.
2: Well, I think that the reason why he's, you know, when, when you read the regular run of Superman with Clark Kent, you know, he's this good old boy kind of, you know what I'm saying? He's like this yeah. honest and thing. I think the reason why they made Keenan the way he is is because they say, listen, we don't want people to read this and say, okay, they're just ripping off or just, taking everything Superman is turning into Chinese form, you know? Yeah. So they want to make him his own character. And again, by doing that, making him how he is, you differentiate him from Clark Kent so people can look at this book and say, okay, this isn't just the Chinese version of Clark Kent. This is somebody who is totally different. The way we were talking off air, we're kind of comparing how can we look at Kenan. And I. It's kind of like a mix of, of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner pretty much.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I, I commend Jean Luen Yang for real. This was a risky move. I mean, this was a yeah. huge risk for him, and I actually do think it, it kind of pays off because it's almost like if you took Chozen from Karate Kid 2 and put him in the Superman suit. Yeah. I mean, he was he's that kind of, you know, he's a bad dude, and he's a jerk, and he's a bully, but, you know, especially towards the end, it's like, really? This guy's the hero? But then, it, but the difference between that character and this character is there are redeeming qualities to the Keenan character. Yeah.
2: Yeah, exactly, man. And I got to tell you, too, switching over to the art of this, you know, real quick, the art is pretty good.
1: I mean, it's it's very solid, I mean, th- throughout the entire book. I mean, you, you almost get like a like a little bit of a hint of a Jai Lee kind of an art, too, yeah. which I think was really cool, and we mixed in with the, what, what Blagdanovich is doing as well. I just I just think that the, the art definitely was a huge part of the story. And the details, even like there's a scene where there's glass breaking and it's shattering everywhere. And that's there's detail given to that, which that's kind of some stuff that every now and then in a book, you know, it's kind of thrown off to the side. And it's like, ah, we don't really care about that. But they point that out. And going back to the writing for a second, there's also a whole conspiracy theory angle in the book as well. And we remember we were talking to Van Jensen about crypt- cryptocracy a couple <laughs> yeah. weeks ago. So it's almost like, Superman meets conspiracy theory meets kind of a bully. So, and I think that, like you said, when we were talking off the air, the Kyle Rayner meets Guy Gardner kind of thing, I think that that kind of hits the nail right on the head.
2: Yeah, man. And again, when you read this book and you see, you know, how Kenan becomes Superman and realizes that he is going to be Superman, you see that. It's kind of, it's interesting, you know, and there's a scene, there's a certain panel, I don't want want to get too into it because, again, it's a spoiler stuff, but uh, let's just say he has a dream and it causes him to do something, and when you see him, like, in full form, pretty much, and you're like, wow, that is, like, I think, A, that's a total turn of character, and B, that's also just phenomenal art as well.
1: Yeah, and him in the suit works. It definitely works because it's a different suit, but once he gets in that suit, it's like, this kind of works and it's in that moment that you're talking about in this book where you kind of get the sense of maybe he can be the hero after all, you know? But then you flash but then he flashes back into the arrogant kind of young naive bully kind of kid again. So I think that we're going to see him going back and forth and you know, and he is a kid, so you're going to get those moments. I mean, think about the, back to the origins of some of your favorite heroes from DC and even Marvel. They had their mm-hmm. moments too where they were immature and they didn't know what they were doing and stuff like that and they didn't know how to be a hero
2: and i like how you mentioned in just in the word flash because it actually does have a certain and i can say what but as a certain element to flash especially when it comes to a certain dream he has
1: yeah it's just the the more and more i think about the book the more and more i think that it it was a risk that maybe needed to be taken you know give yourself a, a fresh take On a character, but not really, it's, you're getting a new character in essence.
2: Well, plus when you also, when you, when you have a character and you, especially when you have a character in Chinese culture, that market, that is just a license to print money. You know? Absolutely,
1: yeah, and I mean the fact that we've got a couple of other characters that are going to be introduced in this book as well. I mean, and if you don't read solicits, I'm not going to spoil it for you. I mean, it's it's in the solicits. If you do, you know who I'm talking about. Yep. If you don't, I'm not going to spoil it for you. So the way that they're setting things up, the one question going forward that I love, that I know that they're going to answer at some point, and that's going to keep me reading this book is why him, right? Why did they choose him for a lot of the reasons that we talked about? And I think that part of the reason that they went this route is because you and I and all of comic book fandom are going to ask that question
2: overall, man. What's your, what's your take on this?
1: I think the, the art was fantastic. The right was, was ballsy and risky. I can't go as far as to say, is this a poll for me yet? I'm right there on the edge of it though. So I'm close So right now it's a pickup for me. I definitely, I will definitely be reading the next issue. I need to see what the next step is, where I can go ahead and give this a full go ahead and say this is a pull for me. Right, and
2: and you mean next step in terms of like how he develops as a character?
1: Right, exactly, and where they're gonna go, and how close we get to the why him question? Because I think if I'm the writer, I let that kind of, I let that kind of dangle a lot longer. I wouldn't give that to us in the second issue. So I want to see how the progression from the issue one to issue two goes before I go ahead and make a final decision on this book.
2: Well, that's going to do it for what we're reading this week. Come next, this week in Geektainment. What's new in the geek sphere in terms of entertainment? Find out next on
1: Down and Nerdy Podcast.
0: This is comic book artist Annie Lennox, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
1: For this week in Geektainment, we're going to try to do something that's been trying to be done since last year, and that's get inside the mind of Mr. Robot, because Nick, it's time to talk about season two.
2: Oh, definitely, man. I think this is show Mr. Robot. You know, it's got won awards and stuff like that, and from what we've been talking about friend, with friends, this show is one of the most anticipated shows to come back, and for good reason, man. I mean, of course, everything that happened with the 5-9 thing, the whole takedown of, of pretty much... E-Corp and just the banks and everything else and giving the money back to people. However, we see in the season two premiere that it didn't really pan out as they hope pretty much.
1: No, and it's like everything's split now. I mean, F Society's still there, but now Darlene's kind of the head of F Society, and we kind of saw hints of that in season one as well. But Elliot's locked himself in a routine to try and keep Mr. Robot at bay and right. all kinds of other stuff. I mean, we find out what's going on with Angela too, as the, as the, as the episode progresses and Gideon and this halfway house that Elliot's in. And it's, it's all like everybody's trapped in themselves almost, it seems like in a loop.
2: Well, and, and with Elliot, you know, he's pretty much his whole idea of, of his character, at least for the early part of the season is the idea of he's in seclusion now. As you mentioned, he's in that, that house. You know, he's trying to keep Mr. Robot at base, trying to suppress him, keep that idea of him, you know, not getting from a computer. As you mentioned, the whole routine he does where he goes to lunch with his friends, stuff like that, and tries to keep on that simple, straight routine and Arrow. And then, you know, there's something like we talked about off air, and I said the one thing that this season really captures, I think it's going to be the tone of it, is to show how everybody in the show is fucked up. And everybody has a motive but that motive is tormenting them mentally as the show progresses.
1: Yeah, and everybody has their own demons and for their own reasons and that is and we're trying to see how they're dealing with it or what the aftermath of that is. I mean, like look at Elliot for example, and I thought that this was brilliant. As you go through the episode when he's going through his routine, it might not it might be a crappy life, but it's it's working for him and this is something he feels like he needs to do, but he doesn't think that it's going to be forever. But if he deviates from that routine even just a little bit, just by somebody else talking to him that wasn't talking to him before, that makes Mister Robot show up, and I think that's brilliant. Just a small little hitch in the routine makes him go off rail.
2: Well, exactly that scene where he's talking to Craig Robinson's character on you know at the basketball court, and Craig's trying to befriend him, and he's like, man, he's like, you know, stop talking to me, you know, we're not friends, stuff like that. And then what happens? You see Mister Robot pop up on the bench, like, come on, help the guy out, you know, come on. Yeah,
1: and like it, his friend at lunch, he asks him what happened to his head because he's got the bandage on, and bam, there he is again!
2: Yeah, and it's just, it's one of those things where it's gonna happen where, I think what's gonna happen is Elliot's gonna suppress Mr. Robot to a point where it reaches a boiling point, and then it just comes out tenfold. Mr. Robot comes back, and he's just, there's, he can't, Elliot can't put him back in the bottle.
1: Well, and there's a line, I think it was at the diner, and it was, I think, one of the most one of the best lines of the show. I'm gonna paraphrase it because I'm not sure that I remember it word for word. But uh, it's Christian Slater, and he says, "I'm at the point where I'm about to be hurt. Right now, I'm just annoyed. You don't want me to get to hurt because you don't want to see what will happen if I do." And I'm like, "Whoa!" <laughs> and then
2: again, that's also I love about Christian Slater and his portrayal of Mister Robot because again, that's a two way street. So yeah. you don't want him to get to hurt because does that mean that? he's going to make Elliot go irate and really even more into the crazy pool or does Hurt mean he's going to make Elliot do drastic shit?
1: Right. I mean, you just don't know. And that is one of the beauty parts about Mr. Robot. And what I also love about this show and they did such a good job with this in the first season as well, is that even though there's a lot of moving parts and there's a lot of pieces and there's a lot of characters that each play their important role in the show, it doesn't feel like you're leaving one thing for another and you're like, oh, I, I wish we'd see more of that or I wish we'd see more of this. It seems like every time they go to a different character's part of the story, even without them melding together, it's an important piece and you want to see it, you know what I mean?
2: And one of the, I think the funniest scenes the entire you know first episode, which of course was a two-parter, for the second season is that the house scene where, I can't think of her name, but she's walking through the house and she's got the smart house. Ah, uh, the attorney, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she, yeah, the attorney for E-Corp. And the, uh, and the everything's just going off. She's swimming. The lights and the music mm-hmm. are blaring. The screen's going up and the down. The hot water I, in
1: the shower. Yeah. yeah,
2: I was laughing so hard. I'm like, it's so great. Because they showed the exterior of it. And yep. The lights are going up and down, dimming. And people are just walking by, like, looking at they it.
1: they the AC down to 40 degrees. 43 degrees, <laughs> she up yeah. She's park in her house. That was great.
2: But uh it's just – it's one of those things where it's smart and then it knows where – it's one of the shows where it deals with a lot of heavy stuff. Oh, yeah. But it knows like with that scene with the house and a couple other scenes – when to break and kind of go a little bit more lighthearted and still be twisted at the same time.
1: Oh, yeah, and I remember when we were talking about this show last year for the first season, before we even really knew what it was going to be about and how smart and different it was and how much it just kind of changed, almost television itself, because this thing was just so different. And the fact that USA was able to get this show and find it and put it on the air, but I I just want to echo this again. I know I probably gushed about this last year, but sometimes... You get an actor that just finds that perfect fit for their career. And Rami Malek
0: as oh, yeah. Elliot,
1: I don't know how, I mean, well, you almost get, you're almost moved to tears as a fan of acting and of television of just how good this guy really is as Elliot.
2: Well, I mean, there's that scene where he, of course, is like, he has a band and you know, Mr. Robot, you know, shoots him in the head and stuff like that. And he just snaps. Like he has that moment where he just starts having that maniacal laugh. And the thing about Remy Malik, I don't know if you noticed, but uh, it was actually announced when they won the Golden Globe, and the creator for it, uh, he, the showrunner, he said that uh, his fiance Emmy Rossum, actually went to him and said he was trying to cast the character, and she said, what about Remy? I know this guy, Remy Malik, and he might be perfect for this role. And so she helped Remy get that role.
1: I mean, it's, it's just unbelievable. It's It's one of those times where I just can't, imagine seeing anyone else as Elliot. He's the perfect choice. He plays that tortured soul and that, that guy that's kind of trapped inside of himself. And, but he's got a conscience at the same time. I mean, it's, he plays every side of this character so well, and it's not just him. There's so many other great performances in the show. I don't want to leave anybody out, but Just him specifically, I mean, it's captivating. Every time he's on the screen, you can't look away. You can't pause the DVR. You can't walk into the other room to get a drink. You have to see what he's going to do.
2: Exactly. And a character we haven't talked about yet, of course, is Tyrell Wellick. Of course, he's being played by Martin Wallstrom. And remember, this whole thing that happened at the end of Season 1, he's now on the run. He's he's now the shadow figure of this. And we're not going to spoil what happens at the end, but let's just say things are going to get a whole lot more interesting with him as you know, as the next couple episodes progress and stuff like that,
1: there was another thing in part two that I also don't want to spoil because it is you don't see it coming. And I mean, you is and I the, watch a lot of TV, Nick, and I me, know where you're coming from. I mean, let's we, say let's just say yeah. it
2: takes place in the bar. Let's just say that
1: we watch a lot of TV, and you know, sometimes with that, and especially being having to review shows and stuff like that, you kind of start to see certain things coming. Not that that's a bad thing, but on every and on a rare occasion. Something happens that makes you just jump back and go, what?
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what just yeah. happened? Yeah. It happened to a point where I was so shocked by it that I literally rewound and started the scene over again.
1: I mean, it, you just did not see it coming at all. It makes sense, but you don't see it coming at all. It's just oh. so amazing. And it was, it was kind of random, too. That was the other thing. You, you don't expect it in that moment. And I think that right. was another beauty part about it.
2: Right, exactly, and you know, before we give our ratings for the season two premiere of Mister Robot, I want to propose an interesting question to you, sir. Okay, okay. so we know how Elliot has Mister Robot as this kind of like voice and, and person inside of his head, right? If you were to have somebody like that in your head, what would they look like, and what would they be?
1: Oh God, if I could have somebody in my head, well, I guess I kind of do in a way. <laughs> <laughs> I think everybody does. I mean, and I, I, I think it's um... like, what would he look like?
2: What was it, or what would she look like? What would the name be?
1: I think it would definitely be a guy. I think it would be, uh, it's almost, to me, it's almost like it would look kind of like me in a weird way. Because, I mean, almost like a, a, like an older version of yourself, I think is what, what I would have. And almost like that, the angel on your shoulder, but also the devil on your shoulder that just kind of tries to keep you in line and tries to keep, let you know, okay, this is important too. Make sure you think about this and you've got to do this, this, and this. And sometimes, I mean, we all get overwhelmed and stressed out. And I think it's that voice in our head saying, don't forget, you've got to do this. Don't forget, you've got this coming up. Don't forget, and you go. Ah, shut up.
2: <laughs> I think for me, it might be my ex girlfriend.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, then you're a more tortured soul than I. In this yeah, case. <laughs> yeah. No,
2: uh, in seriousness, uh, I, it would probably be me. But I think that, like, when you look at like a show like Gosman, like when, you know, with Nick, money has that also that kind of dark side of him as well. It's the more I think when you look at those types of people, those types of voices that are shown in TV shows in people's heads. They're the kind of free slash perfect person in a sense. So for me, the guy would probably have both. It'd be me, but it'd be like you know, perfect body, have all the limbs, the ideal version. Of yeah, himself, the ideal yeah. version of myself, and just but it'd be a lot darker version of myself. In I think terms of just my mindset.
1: Yeah, I think everybody's got that version of them of themselves in their in their head, or some sort of person in their head that you know, kind of either torments them or keeps them in line or or whatever. So I think everybody's got that. And I think that's part of the point of this show is that even though you don't see everybody's Mr. Robot from all these characters, they're making it obvious that everybody has one. Everybody has their Mr. Robot and it's just how they deal with it and how it affects them.
2: Oh, exactly. So it's time to give our ratings, man. I'll have you go first. What do you give this?
1: I can't not give this a 10 for so many other reasons, not only just because ever since the beginning of the show has been right in my wheelhouse anyway. I've been waiting for a show that was really good like this. But when you have a show that has such a lightning in the bottle success right out of the gate in the first season, and like you said, winning all the awards and everything, that sophomore slump's just staring you right in the face. It's like, okay, what's going to happen in season two? Where are they going to go? Are they going to be able to pick it up kind of where they left off? Not only did they do that, they ramped up so many things in this first episode, and even the little tease ahead that they gave for the rest of the season. I think it's just going to be just as good, and they might even actually top themselves.
2: I love this second season, the way it started off. Again, it feels like we're diving more into the psychology of the people, of the characters. Everybody is so messed up. You know, everybody has their own motive, but It's now kind of come to a point where people are finding themselves at their own crosswords as of like, okay, if I do this next step, this could be the end of me. This Mm -hmm. could be, you know, the end of someone else. I love the way it's doing it. It's got like Remy Malek, Christmas Slayer, just everybody on the show is perfectly cast. The writing just adds a beautiful amount of suspense and it even makes you kind of feel for a little bit of Evil Corp at some time because there's a scene where a guy has to do something with $5.9 million yep. that makes you want to cry. And it made me want to cry. I'm like, oh, oh no, no. And uh, I got to give this 10 out of 10 voices in somebody's head.
1: I mean, how could you not? It's just. It's just- it's as close to perfection as I think a show can get, really.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's gonna do it for this week in Geektainment. But come up next, we have a whole boatload of new news, including a crossover that could be, well actually not could be, but very much is close to James's heart. What is it Come up next? Find out on the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
0: Hey, this is comic book creator Jason Sean Alexander, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
2: Well, James, it's time to go around the interwebs and see what's trending, because it's time for what? Nerd Nerd news. news! And for a while, we have said, hey, 20th Century Fox and Marvel could be working together soon, and it turns out that now they are, because according to multiple reports and multiple sources, guess what? A Marvel show is coming to Fox, and it includes the X-Men, James.
1: Yeah, not just the X- I mean, it's going to be the X-Men, but we have actually got a synopsis for it as well Now, I'll go ahead and read the synopsis for you, word-for-word word from the article. It says "The untitled series will focus on two ordinary parents who discover their children possess mutant powers, forced to go on the run from a hostile government, the family joins up with an underground network of mutants and must fight to survive."
2: Okay, underground network of mutants. You know what that says to me? Tell me. Morlocks.: Yep. That tells me that we're going to get a Morlock series.
1: Which is gonna be interesting to see how that's received.
2: Yeah, man. I mean the Morlocks have been very, very interesting ever since I saw them first in the uh, X Men Animated series in the nineties and in you know in the comics and stuff like that. Uh, it's it's gonna be very interesting. But again, you have this family going underground, you know, and and it's very interesting to see how it's gonna play out and who's gonna be cast, what the characters are gonna be, but you know, how weird is it knowing that a Marvel show who is Marvel, of course, owned by Disney, and of course their shows air on ABC, is going to Fox, who pretty much has nothing but DC shows in terms of superheroes and comics.
1: Well, that's true. I mean, that they've definitely got Gotham, and I think it's going to be interesting to see Marvel and DC on the same network. But, I mean, that's that's just Fox, man. Fox just throws caution to the wind. Says, you well, know what? we're going to do what we want to do. Well,
2: let's not forget Lucifer as well.
1: That's true. Yeah, that's a Vertigo property, which is technically DC. Yep. So, I mean, I think that Fox... That's Fox. They just do what they want to do. Fox TV is like, if it's good, we want to air it. We don't care about all this other infighting crap. We want to make sure that we put the best product forward for our our viewers. And the only casualty in all this was Hellfire. Hellfire is now no longer in production, but Legion still is as far as we know.
2: Yeah, Legion, of course, is going to be part of FX, and uh, they believe they start production on that already. Uh, but when I look at this the series and what the potential is going to be. And people are probably saying, well, why couldn't they put the show on ABC? Well, remember, Fox still owns the rights to X-Men, so it's one of those things where if Marvel wanted to probably play ball or they both wanted to do something together, it would have to be on Fox, because, again, Fox owns the rights.
1: Not to mention, you you have to have the ability of networks to play nice together, too, and that doesn't always happen. Like, when they had the CBS crossover with supergirl on flash that was able to happen because cbs owns the cw so that makes the crossover a little easy but when you're talking about fox and abc which is disney playing nice and working together that doesn't always work out
2: yeah man i think again when you look at this like what do you expect what are you expecting out of this show what do you hope to get out of the show grant if they go the morlock route or not what do you want out of this
1: I just want them to be able to, since they're going to be doing this X-Men series on TV, I want the character development that you don't always get in a movie because there's not always time, or you feel like maybe they wasted too much time on this caring character and that character. If we're going to do this on TV, give us the character development for mutants that, even if it's not Morlocks, like you said, give us the development of characters that we might not know about. I mean, we're not going to probably get a Gambit or a Rogue or anything like that on this show. We're not going to get any of the heavy hitters, so... Explain to go deeper into the characters, maybe the lesser known characters that we're not going to know about and give us a little bit of a backstory on them. Give us a little bit more information about their personalities, who they are and stuff like that, because I think you could do that in TV and make it interesting.
2: Exactly. Like, I think the only thing that I'm hoping is just I want it to be good. I want the characters to be really, really strong. And, you know, when you're dealing with this thing, if they do, let's just say they do go the Morlock route, which means that they have to, you know, have a cavalcade of characters. I hope that there could be a, a show kind of like, okay if you ever watch Orange is the New Black. Yeah. Okay, you know how every episode they pretty much look at like somebody before they went to prison. They look at one of the prisoners like each episode's kind of focused on that one prisoner. Actually, each-
1: it, it's funny cuz Fox did that a little bit on Prison Break as well.
2: Right. Yeah. Uh, what if they, I would like to see them do that but with different like with each of the characters that they meet underground you know like why to see why each character was forced underground i think that would be fantastic
1: yeah especially the ones that have already been there for a while you know i think focusing on that aspect and that's one of those times where flashbacks actually work on a show and you want to see what kind of happened there. So hopefully if they do do that, it doesn't run stale. If the show is very successful and it starts to run multiple seasons, that's the only thing I worry about with stuff like that. But if you keep bringing in good characters and new characters, you can keep that going and keep it fresh. And like you, man, I hope that no matter what route they decide to go to, that this is as good as what we used to see from the X-Men on TV.
2: Exactly. James on nerd news, sometimes what we do time to time is we talk about the numbers in terms of sales when it comes to comics. Well, According to the, the reports and the releases of sales, actually, this is a good thing. Estimated total sales for the 300 comics that have come out pretty much uh, in the last month or so was 8531976 which is up by $2 million.
1: Which is a huge, huge thing to hear because sales were dropping a lot as the months were going on and, you know, starting to get worried a little bit, but seeing this news... Which no doubt has something to do with the two comics that we're going to be talking about, because there's another reason we're talking about this as well.
2: Exactly. Now the reason why we're talking about this is because, of course, the top-selling comic from Marvel Comics was Civil War number two, number which is the number in the first issue particularly, uh, which actually sold 381,737 units. Now that's all and good until you look at what happened with number two. You think number two, okay, is some sort of big thing, like, like a Justice League or some sort of big crossover? No. Batman, Tom King's Batman from DC Comics, ranked number two with 280,360 units. So, James, you're the DC guy, and what does what do you you see these numbers, you see how close a Batman book is to a huge crossover within the Marvel Comic Universe. What does this say to you as both a reader and as somebody who grew up with DC?
1: It says to me, first of all, that the DC is doing the right thing. I mean, they're doing exactly what the fans are wanted to have happen. They're listening to the fans. And they not just call a spade a spade here. Tom's Batman run has been excellent, as has a lot of the rebirth stuff. What it also tells me is is that while Civil War 2 is selling really, really well, uh there's there has been some backlash from it from fans online, and especially what happened in issue three, and maybe we'll touch on that for a minute here coming up. But to me, if I'm looking at this it says, how, it says more about how strong Batman is and not how strong Civil War is because when you have a major main cross the company arc like that with all the major characters, it should blow the doors off of anything. Now I know 100,000 is a lot, but when you're talking about the difference in 100,000 when it's just a solo title, granted it's somewhat new, as opposed to something that has everybody in the pool, to me that's telling.
2: Yeah, to me, what I say is, I'm going to look at this from the Marvel angle first, is that, as you mentioned, there was a major death. And this is a spoiler alert, so three, two, one. here's the spoiler. The Incredible Hulk is killed off by Hawkeye.
1: Can we just that pause left... for just a second? Yeah. And let that sink in, what you just said.
2: Now, here's the thing. Killing off the Incredible Hulk is interesting because remember Bruce Banner has kind of always been that kind of a mindset and him and Hawkeye had that pact of like hey if I Hulk out again I give you the right to kill me off and stuff like that but again to have something like Hawkeye kill off Banner is, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's, it's
1: Hawkeye yeah I'm sorry I know that people love Hawkeye I like Hawkeye but a Hawkeye killing the Hulk Bruce Banner whatever doesn't make any sense
2: no it it really doesn't and again my thing is you look at this and civil war 2 because i mean if you read civil war you gotta admit like even though it had some interesting stuff in it it was a pretty crazy series in of itself yeah and civil war 2 i think was their way marvel's way of kind of redoing that again try maybe trying to one up in a sense what they wanted to do with it but Again, you have this whole crossover thing and people are just saying some of the characters aren't that interesting and everything else. And uh, you look at Batman and you just say, OK, it's, it's Batman and it's Tom King. And Tom King, you know, since we've had him on the show and he was talking about Omega Man and Sheriff of Babylon, he's had a lot of name recognition, especially when they came out with the Vision comedy. Remember we were yeah. talking about that. And he said he believed that the Vision is what got him Batman pretty much. And since then, he's been on this you know, shooting star of, of comic book writing fame, pretty much. And so I think that that's what causes the intrigue. I think that with Marvel, one of their issues is, with, the, with their upcoming series, even I think the Marvel now, is you look at the writers that they have, and they're not really changing a lot of the guards when it comes to the writers. So I think that's also kind of like, you know, you see this, and it's like with Batman, okay, it's, it's Scott Snyder. He's, he's left Batman you know he's going to do Detective Comics and stuff like that, and and All Star Batman. Batman, yeah, Yep, And uh, you look at you know Tom and remember this is following Scott was kind of like you know following Coach K at Duke and stuff like that. You know it's not an easy task, but Tom hit it out of the park. So you see that, and again as you said, they're doing everything right. Where I think Marvel can kind of look at what they're doing, with Batman, and say how can we do this with some of our characters and make it to where we are still number one, but you know have that a much bigger margin. Cause yeah, I mean, I, mean I, I see that margin, man. It's just shocking to me.
1: Yeah. And, and, and whether people want to admit it or not, DC and image now are starting to catch Marvel a little bit, especially with how great walking dead has been selling for image. But to me, what DC has been doing is that it's been character driven. And I think that that's, what's, what's helping them out in sales is people are like, wow, that like the, what they're doing with the characters and how they're focusing on everybody's personalities has been really great, and I'm not sure Marvel's, Marvel's really doing that that much. It seems like Marvel's focusing a lot on the shiny keys. Yeah, you know, like, oh, hey, look over here, look over here, and they're writing with one hand and shaking the keys with the other. They don't want you to pay attention to the fact that they're not doing what everybody kind of thinks they are doing. They're really not. They're not focusing on the characters. They're focusing on change, but then they change, and then they keep changing well, and the, keep changing.
2: The focus is, this is what the change is, I want you to see, I don't know if you caught this, but The last few crossovers Marvel's done starting with Original Sin, going to Secret Wars, and now Civil War II. If you really think about it, they're trying to make and enforce change by using a crossover as a way to do that and be that bridge. When in reality, it could just be one event that just resets everything. Just like DC did with that one issue of Rebirth, and they're like, okay, these past 10 or 15 years or whatever have been taken out of time by Dr. Manhattan, everything's now reset. Let's go. Here's the number one for Flash or Wonder yep. Woman. Here you go.
1: Yep. And you have that latent possibility of at any moment the Watchmen could come in and you've got that epic event that's going to happen in DC. You know that it's coming eventually, but it's just kind of sitting there laying in the weeds for whenever they decide that they want to pull it out.
2: Exactly. And the one thing I quickly want to finally say before we move on to the next story is that the whole thing with Rebirth and the difference I see with DC and Marvel in terms of just the comics, what they're doing – Is that, remember, I think it was last year I talked about, you know, throwing things and seeing how they stick to the wall. What DC did was they looked themselves in the mirror and they said, we have to change. We have to do something. We screwed up the new 52. We had to do this. Marvel is looking at the mirror with spinach in her teeth and saying, I look good.
1: Well, you know the thing about d c was it's like it's like when you buy a house, right, right, and you're looking at the floor, I'm like, "Oh, I don't like this floor," and you grab the carpet, you start pulling and you're like, "God, I hope there's really nice hardwood underneath, and that's the roots of what the of the house that's like the bare bones that's like, okay, these the original hardwood floors let's restore this, and let's make this house look beautiful again That's exactly. What DC did with Rebirth, they pulled up the carpet of the new 52, and they're like, oh, look at that nice floor that's been sitting there all this time that we've kind of been ignoring. Let's restore this floor and make ourselves great again like we were before, and maybe that will help us get back to where we need to be.
2: Exactly. Our next story is, again, as I teased, going into newer news is a crossover that James has been waiting for since he was seven years old, because it's been 30 years in the making. Guess what? We're getting it. The crossover people for waiting for, the crossover of He-Man and Thundercats. Mr. Witham, I give you the floor, sir.
1: Man, it's going to be a six-part series, too. we got Rob David involved. We've got Lynn Goldfine involved. Freddie E. Williams II, who's like the go-to guy for these kinds of projects now, because he did Batman, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But it's almost like, like you said, I've been waiting for this for a long time. But I almost let it go because you don't really feel like it's ever going to happen. It's like, okay, when's it going to like happen? It was like
2: me with the Deadpool movie. Like this is never going
1: to happen. Yeah, it's like right. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna see this happen ever in my entire life. And it's been thirty years, man. And I mean, you're gonna see Castle, Grayskull, and Mumra, and freaking Lionel and and He Man standing next to each other. I mean, how do, can you not? As a fan of either or both, not get jacked for that completely. And the art that they showed—that kind of panoramic art—yeah, where they're go—it looks like this Lord of the Rings epic battle is about to happen. If you can't get excited for that, man, I just—I feel sorry for you.
2: And as you mentioned, Mumrah this actually follows and actually circles around Mumra because he actually wants to get this power. That's the synopsis. Wants to get this power. Which is equal to the sword and
1: sword moments, yeah.
2: Yeah. And so pretty much what happens is he kinda causes this thing to happen where Lionel and all the Thundercats go to, you know, where Castle Grayskull is and He Man and end up, you know, this thing is crossover, this team up, if you will. And so it's very interesting. Of course, this comes out October fifth of this year. And and again, as you mentioned, man, it's gonna be something I think I'm very excited for because Again, it's He-Man and and Lionel, and it's just seeing how they interact with one another, you know? That's going to be the most fun part, you know?
1: I want to read a quote from Freddie E. Williams when he was talking to DC Comics about this in the press release, because I think this captures it perfectly. He actually said, The power of Grayskull and the great eye of Thundera have aligned to make me the luckiest guy on all the Earths. Yeah, I mean, as as fans, how can you we not all feel that way? And I know that there's been some backlash. So I was like, oh, this is some money grab from DC. This is a crossover that we don't. Can need. I tell you people something? What?
2: Shut up. Can I tell us people something? It's comics. Yeah, everything's a money grab. <laughs> That's how what?
1: comics Sh- works. And you know what? Shut up. Can we not enjoy things anymore? Can we just not have nice things? Is that is right. that. Is that what right. it is? Can I we mean, not just relax and,
2: re- and be like,
1: hey, we're finally getting a He-Man Thundercats
2: crossover. We've been waiting thirty years for.
1: I mean, is it going to be the greatest literary thing on the face of the earth? No, but not everything has to be. Let's have fun, damn it! Just like Batman and Ninja Turtles. Well, Let's I mean, just have fun, damn it. Well,
2: well, I mean, it could be the best thing ever. It
1: might be. That's the that's the beauty part. It really could be the best thing ever. But for people like me who loved both and had How? the action figures and all that stuff, it's going to be the best thing ever for me, no matter what, pretty much.
2: All right, here, here's, here's a situation I want to put you in. You have a choice to make, sir. Either you get tasked to write a page of He-Man Thundercats, or you get to... Both read the first issue early, and you also get to be got to be in the pitch meeting for the crossover. Oh, what do see, you choose?
1: If I'm in the pitch meeting, though, that way some of my ideas might actually get in the whole book. So I'm gonna have to go. No, with no, that. you're not
2: pitching. You're just sitting there. You're kind of oh, just like, sitting there. So yeah, you're, you're like you're, it's like a wonderful life where nobody can see or hear you.
1: So i have to you're sit just there. there. Like, mm, mm. Yeah, I don't know because if you're in the pitch meeting, you might get the you might get. You know the whole story, but do I want the whole story without being able to see it? I don't know. I think I yeah, I'd rather write the page. You're up. Yep. Okay. Yep. I'd rather write the page, even if it's like an epilogue or prologue, whatever. I don't care, man. Even Let if, me be a part of this. Even
2: if it's just running by the
1: power of Grey Skull. <laughs> yeah, that then the giant lettering that you have when you, right. something really important is about to happen. Like you know that there's going to be some point. There's going to be a page where it's going to be Thundercats, oh! and it's going to be all across the page. It's going to be one of those things that spans the entire two pages.
2: Yeah, I man, well, speaking of something that spans, you know, things, the NES has spanned decades. We've all been lovers of the NES, the original Nintendo, the thing that really kicked off gaming uh, in the home console. I think it really kicked it up a notch from the Ataris and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. And so what happens this week? Well, Nintendo announces, guess what, all you NES lovers? We're going to create a little mini replica of the NES that plugs into your TV via HDMI, and guess what comes with it? 30 games with from the NES, and it's 60 bucks.
1: I love this so much right now. I mean, I even have... I still have my working, functioning Nintendo from when I was a kid. Right. I still remember going to the store and my mom letting me buy it and the, carrying that box home, and it was love at first sight. But it's not crap games that they're giving you either. I mean, you get the first two Castlevania games. Granted, you get Double Dragon 2 and Mega Man 2, but still, you get all the Mario games, you get Pac-Man... Kid Icarus was one that stuck out for me. I'm like, everybody loved Kid Icarus? I thought it was just me. So the one yeah, a lot of good games.
2: The one that stuck out to me, honestly, was Bubble Bobble. I, know, I, right? I love that goddamn game. I know.
1: It's it's one of those things where it's like something for everybody. And the first Final Fantasy, come yeah. on, I lost sleep. And not to mention dude Final the Fantasy. first Zelda game. Yep. Oh the second one too that will want make you want to just scream at the top of your lungs because it's so hard.
2: Right. Yeah.
1: Especially the ending, by the way, that anybody that's
2: yeah. ever played it. Yeah, I know all, all about that. But, I mean, again, you get all the Super Marios, pretty much, you know, Super Mario, Super Mario 2, Super Mario 3. You know, I love this. The only thing I don't like about it is just to hold that cartridge in your hand and put it in yourself. I know, I know. You, know, you know, that's, they're taking away that one step, which is great, because you don't have to worry about you know blowing on the cartridge 20 times and pressing reset and power a million times to get it to work. But, I mean, it's just that one step, I think it felt so good. And, again, having that old-school cartridge in your hand, you know?
1: Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. So, I mean, there, there is part of that loss. But I think once you start playing, you kind of forget all Here's about it. Here's
2: a question, that. though. Do you think that, like, as this thing sells and as it goes on, you think Nintendo's going to find ways to import new games, for example? I think Duck Hunt wasn't on the list. No, nope, it wasn't. Uh, and so do you think maybe Nintendo could That's... say, maybe Nintendo says, hey, we're going to upload a new game for, like, this amount of money, like, you know, a dollar or whatever like that. Yeah. But... Guess what? We're going to come out with a new gun that you can use, you know, as a controller for ten bucks. again, they're selling controllers for or extra controllers for ten bucks a piece.
1: Yep, I think that we will see that eventually. I think that they're going to make this fully upgradable. Otherwise, what's the point? Right. Um, so I think that they will do that. Um, the question is how much space is this thing going to have? They didn't really release any of the details, how much space we're going to have for games and new games and expansion is expansion as easy as something that's like a small thumb drive that you plug in when you want to play certain games or something like that. Right. So, so how upgradable is this going to be? You only really need two controllers. I know some people said, well, what about having more than two controllers for what?
2: For what? Like you Nintendo, know? what was it? Nintendo wasn't, it, it's not the Nintendo 64. Nintendo 64 was one that really utilized the, right,
1: exactly. you know, the, the
2: four person playing because of Golden nine and stuff like that. Yeah,
1: so can we Can we relax and not worry about multiplayer? Here's a question I want.
2: Here's a question I want to propose to you, though. So Nintendo comes out with the mini NES, right? Do you think they're going to come out with? Do you think this is going to usher a new wave, at least for Nintendo? At least we're going to say, you know what? Let's do a mini SNES and a mini N64. I'll
1: tell you what I would do if this is me, and this is just me. I would make a compatible Game Boy unit that will let you play all the games that you have on this mini console on a Game Boy unit wirelessly.
2: Really? So you went like usher out like, hey, let's do a Super Nintendo, let's do uh, a Nintendo 64.
1: I think eventually they do that, but I mean, where do you stop? I mean, do you, do you do Super Nintendo and then and then 64 and then stop and not go GameCube because nobody bought that, or you know, where where is the line? Or do you make it so? Well, GameCube. You game can, Cube, some, like, buy controllers for these, you know, just separate. Maybe you just have to upgrade the controller, and you can get a Nintendo sixty-four game and play it on what looks like a retro NES.
2: Yeah, I mean, GameCube. Really, the reason why GameCube a lot of people buy was because of mostly because of Melee, and if there you were know, some people that like to, watch, you know, play, you know, games like Pikmin and stuff like that. Well, not too, all that. You're,
1: anytime if you love Mario that much. Yeah. You no, know, you're going to you're going to get it just to play the new Mario. Says is
2: I, I would like a Nintendo 64 version just to play the Mario 64, you know.
1: Yeah, and I think that I think that that's a realistic possibility. Think about it. If this unit really has the ability to to be multifaceted, mm-hmm. think about it. You could get cuz I'm sure that partially it probably runs on some sort of an emulator. So if yeah. you had some sort of an upgrade you could get for an emulator, could you imagine using An SNES controller on what looks like a retro NES to play SNES games. Right, that's mind blowing, and that could actually work.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it can, man. So, again, before we close out this segment, what's one thing you really hope for this uh, for for not only this little replica of the NES, but also Nintendo going forward?
1: Upgradeability is the biggest thing with this unit, because if you pay 60 bucks for it and all you can get are these 30 games and that's it, while they're fantastic and while there's hours and hours of fun to be had there, if you don't make it upgradable, people are going to lash out and people are not going to keep buying it. What I want to see from Nintendo going forward is, I want to see them shed the family image a little bit. You have to push back this is what get the gaming community demands. Keep that family-friendly game stuff, but you got to start making more adult titles and try and play in the pool with Xbox and PlayStation because otherwise you're going to go by the wayside. I think if nothing else, the last few years have told us that.
2: Exactly. I would say the same thing as upgradeability. Again, if you're going to have a thing to where, you know, you can, your, Nintendo's going to say, okay, for a buck or whatever like that, you can get this new game we, for this you know, NES game, Mini console, but here's the thing you know, again when it comes to memory, like, does it mean like okay, you'd say goodbye to a certain game if you add a game, you know, because of insufficient space? Again, it's got to be more flushed out as I think get into the more the, the fall uh, season and stuff like that and get closer to its release, which is November 11th. Uh, I think that like when we get to a September, October, there's gonna be a lot more information about this thing and even possibly maybe other mini consoles coming out from Nintendo.
1: Make a Game Boy, I'm telling you, make a Game Boy that you can play wirelessly on your network that will grab the games, put them on the Game Boy, or even make it through a smartphone. I don't care. Just give me something that makes it even more interactive, because if that, I'll tell you what, I still have my old NES, but if you tell me right now that I could buy this thing, and then through my phone, through Bluetooth or something, I can play my NES games from that on my phone, I'm, I'm sold, I'll get it.
2: Yep, and that's going to do it for this week's edition of Nerd News. But come next, we're going to dive into the pages of The Shadow, of The Death of Margot Lane with writer Matt Wagner. That's us come next right here on the Down and Nerdy
1: Podcast.
0: This is Shay Fontana, writer for DC Superhero Girls, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
1: If you've listened to this show before, you know that a character that Nick and I just love is The Shadow. We've read many incarnations, and one guy that stands out to us that probably knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men is writer and author extraordinaire of The Shadow, The Death of Margot Lane. It's Matt Wagner. Matt, how you doing, man?
0: I'm doing great. How are you guys?
1: We're doing great. And as a matter of fact, this is your second time actually writing The Shadow for Dynamite, but now you've kind of taken over the art duties for The Death of Margot Lane for the first time. For The Shadow, anyway, since 2014.
0: Well, so. actually, uh, third time on The Shadow, if you count the Grendel Shadow crossover. Ah, that's true, the
1: crossover, that's right, that's it's, right, so we'll make it the third which, time. Which
0: I drew that one as well, so it's not my first uh, time drawing The Shadow, but the first time drawing a solo adventure, yeah.
1: Well, when you were working with uh, Wilfredo Torres, who did a great job on the year one arc, do you feel like there yep. are kind of advantages, though, even though he did a great job, are there advantages to kind of doing both the art and the writing for this story?
0: Oh, Sure. Sure. I mean, I view uh, writing and drawing as kind of just apples and oranges. It's storytelling. It's all storytelling. But when I'm doing both, I'm just kind of operating on a different level. I pay attention to details and have a control over every little aspect that, of course, just isn't there if I'm not drawing it, too. Uh, you know, again, not saying against Wilfredo. He did a terrific job on that 10-issue run, and I just wasn't... Uh, God, what else was I doing? There's, I was in a position where I think I was writing something else, and I couldn't. Draw that one uh, at the time, but I'm a big Shadow fan from when I was uh, a teenager. In fact, if you want to hear the, how I first discovered the Shadow, um, absolutely, yeah. Oh, definitely. Uh, my my parents were uh, World War II generation, so I, I knew of the Shadow from them. From you know, they of course listened to the radio show like everybody did. Mm-hmm. Then in the early 70s 72 73 something like that when dc got the license to do the run they did with uh denny o'neill and mike kaluta and later michael Uslan wrote a few of those uh, issues as well they had an ad that ran in a standard ad that ran in all the uh dc books and it was you know the shadow comes to life and here was this character uh, who i had kind of heard of and he's pointing guns at you and this was in a day when comic book heroes didn't really have guns Right. And, uh, and so I was very intrigued by it. And so I started picking up the comic and loved it. And then around the same time, all of a sudden you could get a lot of the old radio shows on LP vinyl. So I was, you know, managing to lay my hands on a bunch of those. So I had a dose of the shadow that way. And then about a year later, Pyramid Books started re-releasing the uh, paperback reprints of the original pulp novels with these gorgeous covers by Jim Steranko. And so it's just in the space of one or two years in my early teen years. I got a big, big, big dose of the Shadow, and I kind of never recovered. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think we're both the same
1: way. Yeah, pretty much. That sounds like our experience, too.
0: <laughs> yep. So it was always, you know, over my career, you know, of course, I have my own creator, own titles, Mage and Grendel, but I've, you know, been really lucky and able to kind of go through my bucket list of all my favorite characters from when I was young and have my turn at them. Shadow was always kind of like the big one on my bucket list, so when... Uh, I got the chance to kind of write and help redefine his origins a bit with year one. That was great. And um, I teamed him up with Grendel. That was great. And now I'm having a lot of fun on this one because it's, you know, as you can tell from the title, it's a it's a storyline that has some significance to the Shadow, you know? Very much, yeah. You know, it's a tight, balancing act of a story like that. with a character like that. Uh, a character, you know, kind of very much like Sherlock Holmes is kind of almost indefeatable, you know? It just seems almost uh, omniscient in many ways, you know? But, you know, you got to always remember with Sherlock Holmes and with The Shadow and any of these larger-than-life characters, at the core of them is a human being, and you have to kind of try and find that human connection yep. to really make the character interesting and resonant beyond just exciting, you know?
2: Oh, exactly. And Matt, there's so many things I love about this series and, of course, the shadow in general, especially that the era that it's set in. What is it about the early 1900s that complements the shadow really well? And what are some things you can get with that era you just can't get had it been set in present or future days?
0: Well, you know, I mean, I think everybody would agree that, you know, the 30s and 40s were kind of a high point of a lot of American culture. You know, oh yeah, Uh, terrific fashions terrific uh, architecture, terrific literature, terrific uh, uh, film, you know, just great achievements in all those things and a, and a kind of a setting of a distinctive national style, you know. So, you know, within that framework, you can tell these really terrific stories. But another big aspect of the uh, time period is the fact of the shadow himself. I mean, I'm kind of a firm believer that almost every pop culture character works best in the area of uh, their, their arena of operation, you know, and you know, the shadow, uh, even though, you know, I love the thing chicken did in the eighties where he updated him to me, the shadow works best in that time frame because look at his appearance, you know, I mean, oh, yeah. every man in the street, every man in the street wore a hat in those days. Yep. Otherwise, you know, it's like, well, who's that guy in the hat? Nobody else has a hat on. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> right. Might stand out um, just a little bit. <laughs> and additionally, uh, that was the day and age when cities, major American cities, still had shadows. You yeah, know? yeah, like, yeah. You get know, to New York now; it's lit up like an arcade everywhere. You know, yeah. So that, that all that's very important to the character and his, uh, you know, his history as a former World War One adventurer. And to me, just works best in that time period, and I like doing it in that time period.
2: Well, yeah, especially when you look at like his weapons and the stuff that he uses, and just his techniques. It's just it fits and comments the era so
1: well.
0: Yeah. Yep. Very much so. Yeah. So to me, it's fun to write these historical tales and try and make them exciting with the, uh, you know, with the limited technology of the day, with the, uh, you know, more primitive uh, methods of communication. You know, like when you had to go to a phone booth to make yep. a phone call, that sort of thing. Again, I just have a lot of fun playing in that era. You know, again, I said my parents were from that era, so I probably have like a inherited cultural nostalgia for it. You know, from there them,
1: it was embedded in your DNA. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Well, I, I would agree with that, and I would also say the same thing for Margot. As a matter of fact, you know how badass the Shadow is, but you kind of focus on the first couple issues how badass Margot is as well. So is that something that you yeah, really I want to make focus her on? more than
0: yeah, I wanted to make her more than just arm dressing. You know what I mean? I wanted I wanted to show that you know if she was you know she's either she's either just arm dressing or his bed partner, and I wanted her to be more than that. You know, in the radio show, the radio sh- shadow is quite different than the pulse shadow. And in the radio shadow, she's. She's kind of his sounding board. She's not quite his Watson, even though I kind of make her her Watson, because mm-hmm. I have it that she keeps a private chronicle of his adventures. So it's it's always through her eyes that we see him. I'm kind of a firm, again, going back to the Sherlock Holmes analogy, I'm kind of a firm believer in the fact that we should never be inside the shadow's head, the same way you're never inside Sherlock Holmes's head, because these characters are too too much larger than life you know we can't really uh portray the way they think without bringing them down a notch yeah you kind know? uh, right. of you kind of need the lens of another viewpoint to really make them seem as large as they are well it also adds to the mystery as well you know yeah exactly yeah if you're inside their head uh you, you can follow what they're doing too much yeah
2: exactly and throughout the first two issues of the series the shadow is looking for a mysterious red empress what makes her such a unique villain and the characters are right
0: Uh, Well, we haven't met her yet, for one. She's still mysterious. I I think what's cool about it that you get kind of right from the beginning is the Shadow feels kind of off base. The stuff he's doing to try and find her doesn't seem to be working, and her activities seem to be um, more designed to kind of taunt him rather than uh, achieve any uh, criminal goal, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, so long as things remain a mystery to The Shadow, it remains entertaining for the reader.
1: Absolutely. We're talking to writer and artist Matt Wagner of The Shadow. Death of Margot Lane, of course, issues one and two are available. Issue three comes out on August the 3rd, and it actually concludes on September the 28th. Now, Matt, you actually got to work once again with your son Brennan on this book. Talk about kind of what it's like to work with him, and what do you feel is his biggest strength in stories like these?
0: Luckily, you know, he's my son, and we get along really well. Um, That's not always the case. Um, (laughs) That's helpful, uh, yeah. We get along along great. You know, he grew up in my studio. He grew up listening to me talk about, you know, my attitudes towards art and my stories and stories in general, and he absorbed all that. So we very much speak the same sort of artistic language. Not a whole lot of, you know, we'll we'll sit down and discuss something at the beginning, but then, you know, I kind of trust him to know the directions I want things to go. If he's not sure, he'll ask me. But one of the, one of his strongest strengths is that uh, he really understands uh, the storytelling of color and how color, like the layouts of the page, like the drawing, like the shadowing, can really direct and move and enhance the narrative moment and, and, and the emotion in many, many ways. And additionally, I love his, uh, his application. It's not too slick and shiny. It has a very uh, painterly sort of quality to it. In fact, it's almost looks and feels like he's using actual paintbrushes even though he does everything digitally.
2: Exactly, and we've seen the Shadow team up with the likes of Avenger and Doc Savage, of course, those who read Justice, Inc. from Dynamite. If you could team up the Shadow with anybody in comics, who would it be and why?
0: Oh, well, actually, I'm discussing something with Dynamite about him up, but I can't tell you yet. Ah, <laughs> not up, not with a, you tease! <laughs> uh, and it's not really a comics character. It's a it's a terrific pop culture character. So we'll see how that rolls. <laughs> Man,
1: that's that's intriguing. Now, Not in, uh,
0: comics, uh, well, in comics, you'd have to stick a you'd have to stick in that time period, and b would have to be somebody. You know, I mean, he doesn't really. Even though I give him limited kind of psychic powers, he's not really a super powered character. So you'd have right. to have somebody that fits into that pulpy. You know, not uh, leaping tall buildings in a single bound kind of motif. (laughs) I don't know if you guys remember, but back when DC had the license and did that run, the same run I just mentioned earlier there, they did two guest appearances uh, where the Shadow showed up in Batman.
1: To me, that would be killer. That would be great.
0: Yeah, I will say they were only okay stories. You know, Batman acknowledged that Shadow was one of his main inspirations when we meet them and...
1: You know, when I was like
0: 12, that that was just terrific. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> One of those other characters would be good. Maybe uh, uh, they've probably done this in that Mask series. You know, that Mask series that Dynamite does teams all those characters up. Um, yeah,
1: that, that, they, they've done really good with the team-ups of this character and looking forward to what you've got cooking up. As a matter of fact, another thing about the shadow that we see in this series and we've seen before, that he sometimes relies on certain operatives that possess a very unique skill that he just happens to need. So if you were one it, of the shadows operatives, what would your unique skill be?
0: Oh, I'd cook a dinner.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you're a connoisseur. In my
0: secret so. identity, I'm a gourmet cook. It's, uh, and that's for real. I'm, I'm I'm an ace in the kitchen.
1: What's your go-to dish? What's your favorite thing to make? Oh, I
0: got too many to count, man. It's, I'm, I'm yeah. <laughs> a true
1: food, fu- a true foodie. Yeah. Then
0: look at this. I'm, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not a weekender. I'm. I always tell people if I hadn't learned to draw first, I would have been a, a chef. And nice. Thank God I learned to draw first.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad that we got you laughing because one of the show's biggest characteristics is, of course, his laugh. What is it about the laugh you love the most? And have you ever
0: found yourself doing that laugh that he does? Uh, you have to be uh, you have to be cautious about the laugh. And I kind of address that in an upcoming issue of the of the current series. You have to be cautious about how you use the laugh because uh, it has to be a tool for him. He's not laughing out of mirth, you know. He's he's laughing to mock the foolishness of criminals. Right. And and you know again he could just be a cackling idiot if he chose to do it in every panel, but uh, you know he, it's more that he uses it to inflict fe- the fear of their own guilt in his opponents. You know.
1: Absolutely, and if you haven't caught up on the series yet, issues one and two are available from Dynamite and at your local shops and digitally. If you're looking for issue three. It comes out on August the 3rd, and the series will actually wrap up on September the 28th. been so much fun talking The Shadow, Death of Margot Lane with artist and author Matt Wagner. Thanks for joining us this week.
2: You bet, guys. It was fun. You know, James, it's always fun having a writer, an artist, and a creator on the show who's just so passionate about character and just getting to find out how they came to love that character as well
1: yeah i mean and the fact that he immersed himself in pretty much all things shadow at such a young age and continued that into adulthood so this is a character that he's carried with him and has a connection to even his parents. I mean, I'm sure that when he's working on this character, he thinks about, you know, his parents and how the, they got into the shadow in that era with the with the radio dramas and stuff like that. So I'm sure that this also has a pretty personal connection to him, and that shows through when he's writing this character, not just in his previous project with Year One, but with this Death of Margot Lanark as well. And I
2: love what he said about Margot. He's like, yeah, he's like, normally she's just, you know, a girl that just hangs around his arm or is his bedmate, and it's like, he's like, I want to make her something more than that, and I love what, that he did that. He made her such a strong, strong character who has, like, her own intuition and is just... You got a little bit of a glimpse of Peggy Carter, honestly, when yeah, I was reading her.
1: it was a little bit of that. I mean, when you see the title of the series and you're kind of like, well, that's probably going to be short-lived, <laughs> right? But, <I> mean, <laughs> I mean, at the same time, though, to go out with a bang like that in a way, you know what I'm saying? I mean, obviously, it's the death of Margot Lane for a reason. But I mean, to to kind of give her that edge in an arc like this, I think is super important because, yeah, it gives her that extra added Peggy Carter-esque dimension.
2: Oh, exactly, man. Again, the shadow is just that character who's been around for a long time. And it's just, it's just some of those, those classic characters that dynamite just really, really grabs so well. And they assign such great talents to those books. Again, like, you know, going back to Justice Inc. Like, when I saw Shadow's team up with the Avenger and Doc Savage, I'm like, oh, I have to read this immediately. And, of course, Shadow, I think he was the best part of the entire series. Of oh, yeah, definitely. And, you know, finally, hey, he's getting his own series again, and he's getting the death of Margot Lane. And I'm like, oh, this is just phenomenal. Like, this is this is just great. Like, if you're a fan of, like, the old school, like, like I am. Like, if you're a fan of the yeah. old school radio shows, like, that and the radio dramas, that – is this this is what you love this is what you crave you know
1: and he and Matt keys in on every important aspect of the shadow and clearly i mean like you like even when you were asking about the laugh he clearly wants to make sure that every aspect of this character is done the way it should be done and to right. me that's how you do it, man. That's how you write it. That's how you draw it. That's how you color it. I love that he's given you that much, that much attention to all the little things.
2: And one thing I liked that he pointed out too was, like, I like. He's like, I, he talked about how he believes that characters are pretty much written best or in their best form when they're written yes. in the era that they were created in. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, we see those certain publishers, certain people want to take this certain character to the future. Let's take him to space. Let's take this person here. It's like, no, they're outside their element. Yeah, I don't understand. You want to go with that whole. Fish out of water story and concept, but really when you put them in what the settings that make them what they are and as legendary as they are, that's when they're at their best. That's when the writing's at their best. Hell, that's even, I think, when the art is at its best because you can capture that around like he said with his son. He's like, he looks like he's doing it all on with paint brushes, but he's not because his, you know he's doing it on a computer, but it just looks so nice. His colors are so, you know, not bright and everything else like that that it just looks beautiful.
1: I'm going to be honest, I'm still racking my brain over this whole thing that he's got cooking up with Dynamite. Yeah, who could it be? I think I got a guess.
2: Okay, you can guess.
1: What do you think about Houdini?
2: I think Houdini would be interesting.
1: I mean, I think they kind of touched on that at at one point in one of the one shots or something, if I'm I'm remembering correctly. (laughs) So if they were going to make it like an an ongoing or a limited series, I could see that.
2: I'm trying to think. You know who I think it's going to be? I think he's in a team with Elliot Ness.
1: That would be interesting. That would be really interesting if it was Elliot Ness.
2: I think it'd be something like around that time.
1: There's just so many to choose from, especially from from that era. Yeah. Know, or, or even or even before then, because we don't know what age this person is either. Yeah. So I mean, there's so many that you could choose from, and he didn't say that it was a crossover with another comic book company. Either. No, he did Maybe it is, but
2: watch you know, this. It's the shadow meets the Harlem Globetrotters.
1: This <laughs> the shadow and Scooby Doo mysteries. <laughs> it just seems shadow like spinning a
2: basketball and is gone while the, the Globetrotters theme plays.
1: The Washington Generals miss a shot and you get the laugh. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! But there's so much good stuff with the shadow. If you haven't started reading the Death of Margot Lane yet, issues one and two are available right now digitally and, of course, at your local shops. You want issue three, you're going to have to wait until August the 3rd. I know, I know, but it's going to be coming and it's going to be worth it. The series wraps up on September the 28th.
2: And that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down Nerdy Podcast. And thanks for Matt Wagner for coming on and talking about the Shadow of Death of Margot Lane, again, go pick it up when it comes out in August for Issue 3. And Issues 1 and 2 are available now. And hey, if you want to hit us up on social media, we're all over Facebook, facebook.com slash downnerdy. We're on Twitter at downnerdy757. I'm at Merck with one arm, the one is spelled out, Mr. Witham.
1: I'm at James Ace with that's Witham. That's W I T H A M. And you can get everything you need about us at downandnerdypodcast.com. We review more comics on there, so just look at the reviews. You can find out what else Nick is reading, what else I'm reading. You can listen to past shows on there. We've even got stuff from our Amazon store. You know, San Diego Comic Con is going to be coming up, so we're getting prepared for that as well. And find out everything that's going on on this week's show and even be able to buy the first two issues of The Shadow, of The Death of Margot Lane right there on our This Week section of our website at downandnerdypodcast.com.
2: And as always, press save comic book reading. Always beg and board your comics.